Thank you that in your love you sent your Son for us. Jesus, we thank you for coming. God, we pray that you would give us insight into your word, into your love, into your plan. May we rejoice in our hearts. May we give you glory. And God, as we open your word now, may we submit to you and listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See the, the title of my sermon, What Child Is This? Uh, we didn't sing that song today, but that, that theme kind of was through. Uh, in the children's program, they were asking, you know, Mary, did you know, did you know that this, this baby that you were holding would, would one day walk on water, would one day heal the blind? Uh, there is children's church, isn't there? I'm, I apologize for that. We'll uh, just pause here for a moment. Kids aged four to seven, uh, if parents want to let them go, uh, are, are welcome to go back there with Ryan and Kinsey. So... Uh, yes, but what, what child is this? What kind of child could this be? A child who was announced by angels. A child whom, when the wise men saw from the east that he was to be born, they made a really long journey and brought really expensive gifts to him. Sounds pretty important, doesn't he? Yet, what kind of child is this who was born in a stable and, and laid in a feeding trough? And the first visitors to come to see him we're common shepherds. What kind of a child is this? Even at his birth, Jesus caused quite a stir, and people were wondering who he was. Now, in our day and age, we have lots of questions about Jesus, too. You could go to anybody in the world and ask them the question, do you believe in Jesus? Now, we have a little bit different perspective on it because in some ways we're trying to look back and trying to understand, is he the one that God sent? Is the Bible accurate? Did, did God really do that? And we have questions about do we believe whether or not that was true. But it's kind of interesting if you think about it 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked around and the, and the question wasn't necessarily do you believe in Jesus because he was right there with the people. He was doing and saying amazing things. The people of his day had a different kind of question. And the question that they had, to a large degree, had to do with whether he was the Messiah. Last Sunday, we looked at, at Psalm 89, and in that psalm, we read about the prophecy, the great prophecy of God, that he would send a king in the line of David and that he would reign forever. It picked up on the prophecy of 2 Samuel 7, which I often call the second most important passage in the Old Testament. It's so important because it was, it was God's proclamation looking ahead of what he would do in his son. I want to read for you from 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 13. This is the Lord speaking to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was the promise that God gave about a thousand years before Jesus came. That was the promise that God's people hung on to as they went through a roller coaster of ups and downs, mostly downs, though, in their history, as the people awaited for God to come through on his prophecy to bring the king who would reign forever. So for hundreds of years, even up to a thousand years, people waited for the Messiah. Now, I've got a little pop quiz for you. This is from last Sunday, so those of you who were here last Sunday should know this, but what does the word Messiah mean? Uh, you don't have to answer this one out loud, but there are, there are two acceptable answers. But again, the, the question that people were asking, 
Jesus? Are you the Messiah? Well, first, Messiah means anointed. In the Old Testament, oftentimes when somebody was set apart for an important position, they would be anointed with oil. So they would literally pour oil on their head to anoint them. And it was a way of showing that they were consecrated or set apart for that position. It happened early in the Old Testament with the priests. They were anointed with oil. But then as the New Testament went on, it it mostly had to do with the king. So that's why I said last week that... Uh, mainly in the Old Testament when we talk about the Messiah it had to do with the picture of a king and, and there are several places in the Old Testament as well where a king was anointed with oil so that's what the word Messiah means it means anointed uh, but there's one other thing that one other word that's helpful to help us understand what the word Messiah means it simply means Christ Messiah comes from a Hebrew word and that gets translated into Greek as Christos And we, in English, simply say Christ. So when we say Christ, we're saying Messiah. So did you know that Christ isn't a last name? It's not like his name, first name was Jesus, last name was Christ, and middle name was the. No, that's that's not it. Uh, He was Jesus of Nazareth, and he was given the title of Christ, of Messiah, by God. It's it's a, a simple fact that God set Jesus apart as the Messiah, as the Christ. Now, I say it's a fact, but it's a fact that not everyone knows. And in fact, as Jesus was walking around, it was that very question about the Messiah, about that title, that people wonder. So what I want to do here, we're eventually, uh, shortly, going to look at a very famous Christmas passage. But what I want to do first is I want to walk you through what some of the people of Jesus' day were thinking. Because I I want you to understand how important it was for the people to have an answer to this question, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Okay, so let's start off with uh, Matthew 2.2. 2. This is the Magi, the wise men, asking King Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? So notice what they asked. They asked where the king was. And just two verses later, when King Herod gave his answer, King Herod asked where the Christ was to be born. Isn't that interesting? They asked where the king was to be born, and Herod, in response, went to his theologians and said, what does scripture say about where the Christ is to be born. So right there, there's a connection between the king, the king of the Jews, and the Christ, the Messiah. Okay? And then as Jesus went on, again, people saw him do amazing things. They heard him say amazing things. And they wondered if he might be the Messiah. The woman at the well in John 4.29 said to her townspeople, could this be the Christ? It caused quite a stir. In John 7, again, Jesus was causing a stir. It's amazing how often he did that. Um, But the people there argued, is is he a prophet? Is he the Christ? A bunch of people didn't believe in him. And then in John 10, verse 24, the people said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They wanted to know, is this the Christ? Is this the one they were supposed to look forward to? Or in Matthew 26, 63, the high priest said to him, to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Also in Jesus' trial, in Luke 27, 22, 67, if you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Moving on, Mark 15, 32, this is Jesus on the cross, and the, the people mocked him, saying, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So again, there, they're connecting the Christ to this position of King of Israel because they knew from their scripture that that's what they were to look forward to in their Messiah was the King of Israel. 
I think I have one more. Luke 22:39. This is the thief speaking to Jesus. said, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. God's people had been told for hundreds of years to look forward to the Messiah. They had great hope. Again, their, their history had been a difficult one. When King David was reigning, it was a pretty high time for them. But then, like I said, it was a roller coaster of mostly downs, a few ups in there, but mostly downs. And can you imagine then the expectation as they waited for God to make good on his promise of sending the Messiah? And remember, it wasn't their own idea. It was God's promise. God even told them where the Messiah would be born. Look at this. Oh, sorry, I missed one of those verses. Uh, yeah, he claims to be, a, be Christ, a king. Okay, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So the people were waiting for this king to be born in Bethlehem, to rule over Israel and to reign forever. I want all of that to be the backdrop then for the passage that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this familiar passage from Luke 1, verses 26 to 38, about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and telling her what would happen. So Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now isn't that important? Joseph is a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. So it's interesting to note that when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, she was, uh, what does it say about her, greatly troubled. It's a very similar reaction. It's, it's not just that women are scared of angels. It's the same reaction that Zechariah had earlier in chapter 1 when the angel came to him. Uh, he was startled and gripped with fear. So when these people saw an angel, they, they thought, uh-oh, what's going to happen to me? But right away, the angel calmed Mary, uh, said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And then, in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Isn't that interesting that twice there, the angel told Mary that she was favored by God. Now, we don't worship Mary. We shouldn't worship Mary. That wouldn't be right to do. We only worship God. But let's not forget her either, because what, what we're going to see from her today is a wonderful response to God's message. Uh, and let's look at that message for her, the, the message that came from the angel Gabriel to Mary. First, he told Mary that she would become pregnant. Now, that's no small announcement for anybody, right? I, I mean, I remember getting that message and being like, whoa. But here she is, uh, an, an unmarried woman. Yes, she was betrothed, she was pledged to be married, but she wasn't married yet. So, 
Isn't this interesting what God was doing? For, for a thousand years, his people had been waiting for the Messiah to come. And then when God chooses to bring about the Messiah, he chooses an unwed young girl. And I love that picture. Uh, the picture of Jesus' birth in many ways is the picture of humble beginnings. And I think God, God did that on purpose to remind us that the coming of Jesus was for everyone. Not, not just for the elite, but for everyone. Any who would come to him by faith. Very humble beginnings for, for our, our King of Kings. And in verse 31, Gabriel told to Mary that she was to name the child Jesus. Now, I pretty much do this one every year, so I'm going to ask again this year, and I do want an answer out loud this time. It's another pop quiz. What does the name Jesus mean? Savior? Savior? Okay. The Lord saves. Who, who was that? Who said that? All right. Hey, Chloe, way to go. Your parents should give you a candy bar for that. <laughs> Uh, that's what the name Jesus means. It comes from the name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, I think there's probably several of you in here who didn't know that. That's, that's one of the things that I would love for you to leave here knowing, is that the name Jesus means the Lord saves. Look what it said. the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 1.21. You are to give him the name Jesus because... He will save his people from their sins. So the, the name Jesus is full of meaning. It, it means that what God had promised to do to rescue his people, he would do. And, and that promise of rescue, um, the people of Jesus' day, I'm sure, when, when you ask them if, what they needed to be rescued from, I bet probably most of them would have said, well, we need to be rescued from Rome. They, they're oppressing us. They're in charge over us, and we want to have our own kingdom. But that was not... Rome has come and gone since then. The biggest thing that stands against any of us is our sin. So for Jesus to take the name, Jesus, meaning the Lord saves, it's a really important thing that God was announcing to his people. The Lord saves. And then we learn more about who Jesus would be in verses 32 and 33. I want to reread them. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And I want to key in on those promises relating to David. The, the reason I say that 2 Samuel 7 is perhaps the second most important passage in the Bible is because of this passage here in the New Testament. Because of what the people were told to look forward to and what God finally brought about. Again, God had a bunch of promises in the Bible. And, and as the Bible went on, more and more the people were told to wait for this Messiah, to wait for this coming king in the line of David. So in verse 32 of our passage, when it says the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, that is a very big deal. Remember the specific promise from 2 Samuel 7.12? From God to David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. So the angel Gabriel told Mary that that was what was about to happen through the child that would be born to her. And then it goes on in 2 Samuel, remember this promise, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I, I made a point when I preached on David that, that David couldn't be that forever king because he died. Well, but then you say, well, his son Solomon took over. Well, yeah, Solomon died too. And so did the next guy and the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. Well, you could say Jesus died too. Yes, he did, but he rose again and he reigns forever. That is why these promises can only be fulfilled in somebody like Jesus, the Messiah. 
somebody who would reign forever. That's what God was bringing about. So for about a thousand years, people waited for that. And now the message to a young Jewish girl was that God was going to make good on his promise. And let's remember that. God isn't just a God who makes promises. He's a God who keeps his promises. And and think about that. We are a people who sometimes question God's promises, sometimes question God's goodness to us. Um, I'm sure that the Jews in the thousand years between David and Jesus had a lot of questions about God. God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting the Assyrians come? Why are you letting the Babylonians come? Why are you letting the Romans come? Why do we have to live in oppression? (coughs) Similarly for us, we have lots of questions. God, why do you let cancer come? God, why do I have to put up with those difficult people around me? Whatever our questions might be, sometimes we question God's goodness and we forget that God is the God who's already promised us that he will make everything new. And that in heaven there will be no mourning or sickness or crying or pain or death. The curse will be taken away. And we don't just have promises for heaven, we have promises for right now, the promise of God with us that we've been studying for a while. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in what we go through. So often we question God's goodness, but I hope that one of the things that we get from this passage is that even though it took a thousand years, God made good on his promise. And God's not afraid to make us wait sometimes. I think the reason that God wants us to be patient isn't just for patience' sake. It's because he wants us to trust that he's in control and that he will take care of everything that we need if we trust in him. So God does keep his promises. We can take that to the bank. Now, Mary got these promises, and she questioned how it could all happen. She wasn't even married yet. The response from Gabriel was that God would send the Holy Spirit, and that the power of the Most High would come upon her. Um, So, in our adult Sunday school class, we've been studying the Holy Spirit, and one of the things that we've been understanding about the Holy Spirit is that sometimes when God does something, he does it through the Holy Spirit, and that shows us the unity of the Trinity. And that's, that has major implications for our lives. That we, we know sometimes that God wants to do things in our lives, but maybe we fail to remember sometimes that God sends the Holy Spirit for that very purpose. So this year in our adult Sunday school class, we're studying that. We're, we're going to pick up again in January and probably go all the way through May. We're going to look at pretty much every verse about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about how the Holy Spirit works, I invite you to come to that class. But getting back to Luke 1, uh, Gabriel told Mary that even her relative Elizabeth, who up until that time was barren, that she was also with child. And I love how Gabriel said it in verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Let's remember that. Whatever it is that God wants to do, even in our life, sometimes maybe we think that God can do powerful things in other people's lives, but let's remember that God can do powerful things in our lives as well and that nothing is impossible with God. And then I love Mary's response in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. So here, Mary immediately submitted to God's will. And remember, that came at great consequence to her. That meant that she would have to go through the public scorn of being an unwed mother. But even so, she signed up for it and said, may it be to me as you have said. 
uh, I, I was meeting with some pastors this week, and one of the pastors from Fergus Falls here, he said it quite well. He said that so often our will collides with God's will. That so often we have our own ideas about how we think life should go, but sometimes God comes along and shows us a different path. And oftentimes there's this moment where, where we might dig in our heels against God and say, hey God, I had my own plans. I'm gonna, I want to do my own thing here. And the key question, as this pastor said, when our will collides with God's will, the key question is, will we submit? And that's a really important life lesson here. And Mary passed the test with flying colors. She said she was the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And do you ever wonder why Mary said that? How did Mary, just in the, in the midst of this short conversation, how did she know that she could say that? Well, I think one of the keys is in one of the very first things that the angel said to her. If you go back to verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, it's funny to me, this might not be funny to you, but it's funny to me. I've been doing a God with us passage, uh, sermon series for like the last month and a half, maybe even two months. And I did not pick this passage at all because of this God with us verse. In fact, I forgot about it until I was studying it this week. And I, I picked this passage because of God fulfilling his promise about the Messiah. And as I'm studying the passage, I see the Lord is with you. And it's like, again, uh, over 200 times in the Bible, we see this blessing of God with us. And it was for Mary here. God had a difficult task for Mary to do. But right away, he promised his presence with her. So I love this. God was with Mary and she was willing. What else was needed? The story of Jesus is meant to remind us that God wants to be with us. Now we're going to hit that theme in full at our Christmas Eve worship service. Uh, but for now, let's just remember this real life of example of a, a girl who was asked to go through something really difficult Yet God promised his presence with her to strengthen her for it. Uh, the theologian Daryl Bach put it this way, He, God, can place her, Mary, in whatever difficult circumstances he desires, for she knows that God is with her. God may have some difficult circumstances for us. Let's remember that if he has something difficult for us, he also wants to have his presence with us. Okay, I want to summarize this passage now. And I want to do two things in my summary. First, I want to just kind of key in on some of this important theology that we've been talking about and, and, and kind of bring it to a conclusion. And, and then second, I want to ask a question of what we should do in response to it. Uh, so first, this question of theology. And it's, it's amazing how important this is. Uh, this passage right here, again, you think of the, the thousand years that God's people had been waiting, and here it is, God bringing it to fulfillment. But what specifically did God bring about? Well, here it is. Jesus Christ is king forever. Uh, isn't it amazing? There, there are no other forever kings. There are dynasties that can last a long time. But even dynasties come and go. Jesus Christ is king forever. He is the fulfillment of those promises. And like it says in verse 33... He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. He is the Messiah. He is the king. And if we look at Revelation 19.16, we see that he's not just a king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Even when he was a baby, shepherds came and worshipped him and wise men came and brought him gifts. Why? Because that's what he was worthy of and so much more. Now if Jesus is king, what does that mean for us? 
Well, the simple answer is that if he is the king of kings, then there's no room for us to pretend that we are the king or the queen of our own life. We are all tempted. If I can just speak to our lives today, 2015, even think about this holiday season. Think about how many of your own ideas you have floating in your mind right now about the way that you think your life should go. And I'm not saying it's wrong to plan or to have ideas. I've got lots of those plans and ideas. But the thing is, is that we are tempted to demand our own way. We are tempted to live as if we were the king or the queen of our own life. But the truth of the matter is, there is one king of kings. Jesus Christ is king forever. And our lives should bear the fact every day, even every moment of every day, that we are living in submission to him. We're tempted to live according to what we think is best. But if we live like that, we're trying to set ourselves up as king or queen. But Jesus Christ is king forever. May we remember that. So that's the truth that I want to summarize. But what I want to do next is I want to ask a question. The question is this. How should we respond? Mary was given a message, and it was a difficult message, and it was even hard for her to understand how this message could possibly come about. But her response is an amazing one, and it stands as an example for us. For Mary, this was a life changer. Imagine how life changing this message from Gabriel was. I'm sure that Mary had plans in her mind. Uh, she was already betrothed. I'm guessing that she had plans about starting a family the traditional way, in the right order. But then God came along and showed her a different plan. And again, it, it comes back to this idea when your will collides with God's will, what are you going to do? And Mary here is a perfect example. In humility, she said, I am the Lord's servant. You know, if you get nothing else from today, I think that's what I'd like for you to leave with. It's just this picture of, of Mary saying, I am the Lord's servant. Again, think about it. If Jesus Christ is king forever, what should we be? Servants. So for Mary to get this message from the Lord and then to say, I am the Lord's servant, it's a perfect example for us of how we should respond throughout our day, constantly. Not just in those big, huge life decisions that we make, but in everything that we do to submit to God's will and to say, God, I'm your servant. What do you have for me to do? And then she went on to say, May it be to me as you have said. When the word of God came to her, she let it change her life. Now, I'm guessing that most of us haven't had a conversation like this with an angel. If anybody's had a conversation like that, I'd love to hear about that. I think that would be really interesting to hear. But I'm guessing most of us haven't had that. But we do have God's word. And we can say in that same, with that same faith that Mary had, may it be to me as you have said. We can be people who go to God and say, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. God, let your word have its powerful impact in my life. So let's be people who serve the Lord and who take him at his word. So Mary, she did that. In humility, she accepted this, this task from God. She became the mother of the Lord. And, and isn't being a mother, isn't that a wonderful picture of being a servant? In God's wisdom, I think that's one of the, the reasons he chose Mary to do this. He chose a woman to be the mother of, of Jesus so that she would feed him and take care of him and clean up after him and all those things. Now, for you, it might look different than that. Or it might look surprisingly the same as that for some of you as you clean up messes and change diapers. But that's, that can be one of the ways that you can serve. 
And maybe think about that. The next time you're changing a diaper, say, I am the Lord's servant. I can do this. This is not beneath me. If anybody in the history of humankind ever had the right to say, this is beneath me, it would have been Jesus Christ and him coming to earth. But what did he do? He came as a servant. And we are to take that same posture of servanthood. Again, when God's will collides with our will, I hope that we all have the humility to say, I am the Lord's servant. Again, if you don't remember anything else from this message, I think that's what I'd like for you to remember. It's just for you to walk throughout your day with this heart attitude of wanting to be a servant of God. And one of the ways that we can be a servant of God is to be a servant of others. And to say, I am the Lord's servant. And then I also just want to mention this promise of God with us. The promise of God with us wasn't just a promise for Mary as she carried the baby Jesus. The promise of God with us, as we've been studying for the last month and a half or so, is a promise for anybody who will receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and walk with him by faith. That God's heart desire is to be with us in what we go through. God has sent his Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is King of Kings. He came as a servant. He was born as a baby, and eventually he died for our sins. And our response should be to receive him as Savior and Lord. He gave his life for us. We should give our life for him, to him. In 2 Corinthians 5.15 it says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. You get that? No longer living for ourselves. If, if we pretend to be master or king or queen of our own life, we're living for ourselves. But if we're the Lord's servant, we say, I don't live for myself anymore. 2 Corinthians 5.15 should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Or as Mary simply said, I am the Lord's servant. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we thank you for sending the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our forever King. We're so grateful, God, that you've told us that he will reign forever and that if we know him as Savior and Lord, that we get to reign with him. Thank you, God. Thank you for the salvation that he brought about, which means forgiveness of sins for us. We praise you for all of that. In response, God, I pray that we would all live by faith. And and if anyone here doesn't yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that they would receive him right now they would give their lives to him. And God, for all of us who know you, may we live our lives as your servant. May it be to us as you have said. May we follow you and walk with you and serve you and glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.